But let's pray. Father, we just thank you right now that your word is good, your word is true. And we ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts tonight. Lord, we need your word. We're starving for your word. We're thirsty for your word. And we know that your word will build our faith, will light our fire, will give us the confidence and the strength to go forward, onward, and upward. We thank you, Lord, for building our faith tonight. Now, would you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me, I pray. I receive the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's going to talk about Paul the prisoner. Paul the prisoner. When I put that title down, I thought, well, it's never been said Jeff the prisoner uh, because of the gospel of Christ. It was said that once because of drugs, but that was a long time ago. But Paul the prisoner for doing what was right. Anyway, so that's what we're going to look at tonight. And the next two Wednesdays, we're dealing with Paul the prisoner because now his life has totally changed, uh, or it will change tonight when we see him imprisoned, and um, he's looking at a long haul. So last time we closed out with yet another mob riot where Paul and company uh, are viciously slandered and attacked by the same Jews from Asia that had attacked him previously. As Paul is being whisked away, if you'll remember, from the angry crowd, he asked permission of the Roman commander to address the crowd. He was never afraid. This man was a courageous lion. He really was. They wanted to kill him, and he wanted to address them. Somebody wants to kill me, I'm not interested in talking to them. But he said, I'm gonna, let me talk to them. So granted permission, he waves his hand. Remember I talked about that last week. He waves his hand from the top of a stairway, and suddenly a great stillness falls upon this crowd. And chapter 21 ends with the verse, quote, And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and the translators decided to call that a chapter, and they ended it in mid-sentence. And so we're picking up in chapter 22 the rest of this sentence. And so let's pick it up in 22, verse 1. Brethren and fathers, says Paul, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Have you ever noticed that it matters when you talk to somebody in their language? When you talk to somebody in their language, um, they, you, you have their attention more. There's more of an identification. So when he spoke to them in their native tongue, they got even quieter. They said, this guy is one of us. Now, he was probably speaking Aramaic, uh, which was a kindred language of Hebrew, but probably not in Hebrew, but Aramaic, which was the vernacular of Easterners in that day. The Westerners spoke Greek, Koine Greek, the common Greek, of that day, the Greek that is in our Greek New Testament, Koine Greek, common Greek. So if you were in the West, you spoke the Koine Greek. If you were an Easterner, then you spoke Aramaic. Now, then he said, I'm indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, or Cilicia, and, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and I was zealous toward God as you all are today. I was just like you. I'm speaking in your tongue and I understand where you're coming from. I was just like you. And he also was smart enough to name drop. 
because he name dropped Gamaliel. Why did he bring up Gamaliel? Because Gamaliel was considered the greatest Old Testament scholar and teacher of that day. Remember, it was Gamaliel that, that spoke to the Sanhedrin earlier on in the book of Acts when he said, now, now, if this work is of God, we can't overthrow it. So I advise you to leave these disciples of Christ alone because if it's not of God, it'll, it'll end on its own. But it's of, if it's of God, who are we to fight against God? We cannot overthrow God. It was the same Gamaliel. So to say that he was a student of Gamaliel was name-dropping. He knew that that would give him greater prestige in the eyes of this crowd, especially the Jewish fathers that were out there in that crowd. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the honesty and the transparency of Paul because he's about to, to share a litany of his crimes against Christians before he was saved. Let me tell you, Paul, when he was Saul, before he was saved, was bad news if you were a Christian. Look what he says, verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there uh, to Jerusalem to be punished. So here's the words, binding, imprisoning, chaining, punishing, killing. Your apostle, Paul, did that when he was Saul. Talk about the way we were. I don't think anybody can look back on a past like that. And, and you know, so if you have trouble experiencing the forgiveness of God over your past, you didn't do what Paul did. Amen. I said, you didn't do what Paul did. You, did you, you, you may have done some drugs, involved in some immorality, maybe drinking, whatever it was you did, and the devil tries to pound you over the head with that. Paul had to look back when he was Saul. I killed men and women. I imprisoned them. I chained them. I beat them. I broke up families. I carried them away. I was hell on earth towards Christians. You think he didn't struggle to, be, to, to, to forgive himself? To, to, you know, I, he was a normal man. I think he had to struggle with it. I, I do believe he did. But he made such a breakthrough. He said, what I was, I'm not anymore. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and all has become new. But look at what he had to say, uh, I forgive you and move on. Talk about forgetting what lies behind. Look what he had to forget, what was behind him. So, amen, we didn't do all that. Now, he admits that he fully believed he was doing a service for God in coming against the believers. He killed some, chained, imprisoned both men and women, was determined to eradicate Christianity from the earth until, verse 6, now it happened. As I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. Now, pay close attention to the verbiage here, because notice, his encounter with heaven's light took place at high noon. The sun is at its full strength. But he says, heaven's light was so bright, it was brighter than high noon, where high noon looked darker than heaven's light. Now, that's bright. 
So the light of heaven was far more, far more brilliant than the noonday sun. No wonder David wrote these words in the Psalms. He said, in your light, we see light. Do you see what that's saying? God's light is so bright that if you put regular light in the midst of God's light, you see regular light being darker than God's light. And, and that's what's going to be shining in heaven. That's why we don't need the sun in heaven. Because that kind of light is going to enlighten heaven. So his light is so brilliantly bright that normal light looks dark compared to it. And when, when this light surrounded Saul, the persecutor, it says in verse 7, I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now keep in mind, dear church, who's he talking to? He's talking to a rabidly furious, angry Jewish crowd that are totally antichrist, totally against Jesus having been the Messiah. And he's given this testimony that just rocks, right? So, so you could hear a pin drop on a shag carpet right now. So he says, I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Uh-oh, ding-a-ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ding-a-ling-a-ding-a. Because they know that name, because they killed that man. So, and he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, who you're persecuting. I have to think here of the times the Jews scornfully said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Remember that, John 1, 46, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Jesus identifies himself to Paul by the very name he and his fellow Jews had despised. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? And now Jesus says, hey, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting, Saul. We can only guess here at the flood of emotions sweeping over this man. Because you've got to understand, folks, he's a brilliant theologian. He did learn at the feet of Gamaliel. He knows the Old Testament inward, outward, upward, downward, thoroughly, consummately. He knows that Old Testament. And he has been convinced he's doing God a service to wreak havoc on the church of Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, this Jesus is, is talking to him, naming him, and saying, you've been all wrong. All his theology is crashing in a microsecond. Guilt, remorse, shock, dismay, fear, all these things sweeping through his mind. He continues with his testimony, verse 9. And those who were indeed with me, they saw the light and they were afraid, but they didn't hear the voice. See, when God comes after you, you hear the voice. You may see a, a light around somebody that's heard the Lord or had an experience with the Lord, but when God comes after you, you're not just going to see the light. You're going to hear the voice. And he will call you by name. Saul, Saul. He said to me in jail as a 16-year-old, Jeff, Jeff, what are you doing? I'm Jesus who died for you. He knows your name, knows your address, knows when you were born, knows the day you're going to go home. He knows all about you. And so these men that were with him, they see this brilliant light. But, but Saul is talking to somebody, and they don't hear the return voice. 
So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you're going to be told all things which are appointed, appointed for you to do. (laughs) Jesus cut right through it all, didn't he? He said, guess what? You're mine now, and I'm about to tell you what to do with the rest of your life. And he can do that if he wants to. Now, Paul says, since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were there with me, I came into Damascus. The light blinded him. Now, Paul's whole life at this point, everybody, please, let's step into his sandals for a minute. His whole life lay in ruins about him. He had spent his life and energy, his reputation, everything, in persecuting the very people whose Lord he had now personally met. All he could mutter was, what do you want me to do, Lord? Notice, he's immediately calling him Lord. He was saved on the spot. There was no arguing. There was no debating from this incredible debater. No pushback from Paul. Only meek submission. What do you want me to do, Lord? And you know what every saved person ought to say? What do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? I'm no longer my own. I'm yours. You bought me with a price, the price of your blood. What do you want me to do? That's what I did. I got saved in jail. I said that night, what do you want me to do, Lord? I'm yours now. And he had every right over my life, and I lost all rights to my life. And so have you. You may not know it yet, but you have. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Which are God's. So, verse 12, then a certain Ananias, once he was in Damascus, he's continuing his testimony to this crowd now. A devout man, Ananias was, according to the law, he had a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and he said to me, Brother Saul, Receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. (laughs) It struck me when I was getting this ready. The last thing he had seen was the face of Christ. Now the next thing he sees is the face of a Christian. First the head, then a member of the body. And Ananias is calling him brother. Ananias knew what he had done. Ananias protested when the Lord first told him to go pray over Saul. But Ananias has received him in Christ, so now he's just calling him brother right off the bat. Brother, brother, Saul. Then Ananias continues, verse 14. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you so that you should, now watch this, know his will, see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. Everybody say, know, see, and hear. God has chosen you. You have been chosen, Saul, to know his will. Now, I don't think that Saul had any inside track on God in this respect over us, in this respect. He's no more saved than we are. He was not more saved than we are. Yes, he was a chosen vessel unlike any, I think, in the New Testament church because God chose him not only to reach the Gentiles but to write two-thirds of the New Testament. And, um, you know, Apostle Paul and Christianity are like, uh, you know, bread and butter. But here's the deal. 
if, if he was chosen to know God's will, so are you. He has chosen you to know his will and to see the just one and to hear the voice of his mouth. Can I say to you tonight, dear church, I believe you're called to know his will, to see the just one with the eye of faith as you increasingly come to know him and to hear his voice. You're hearing his voice right now. Through my, I'm just quoting the Bible, which is inspired by him. So we're called to know his will, see his son, see the Lord Jesus Christ, and hear his voice, the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now here's the bottom line. He has this incredible experience. For three days, he's blind. He's not eating, not drinking anything. And as he emerges now and he's been prayed for and he has sight again, he's realizing, as I persecuted the Lord from heaven, now I must proclaim him. What a conversion. Now, as the quiet crowd continued to listen intently, he's given a powerful testimony. Paul knew he was leading up to the part where he was called to the Gentiles. And he's going to give that part of his testimony. And so he's moving cautiously because he knows their prejudice against the Gentiles. But that was the keystone, the cornerstone of his call. You're going to go to the Gentiles. So verse 17, now it happened. He's given his testimony further. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem the first time after Arabia. This is the first time he went to Jerusalem. That's what he's talking about. And I was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and I saw the Lord saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. In every synagogue, he walked into the churches and grabbed them and beat them. He said, and when the blood of your martyr, Stephen was shed, I was standing right there consenting to his death. And I was guarding the clothes of those who were hurling the rocks at him. Now, what he's saying here is he's saying, I said to the Lord, I don't know why they would come against me because they know how I was so against Christianity and Christ. And now I've had this experience. Won't they understand? And Jesus was telling him, no, they're not going to understand. Now, no doubt, Paul is sharing, once again, the severity with which he'd attack the church to show the listeners, hey, something very, very real must have happened to me or I wouldn't be standing here preaching Jesus. I mean, hello, guys, something happened to me. But his next sentence ignites a firestorm and changes his whole life. Verse 21 Then he, Jesus, said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Paul's assignment was not Jerusalem. It was the far-flung Gentile world to be an apostle to the Greeks and the barbarians. The very people the Jews looked on as dogs would be Paul's sheep. That's why I say, bring the hell's angels in here. Bring the strange people, bring in the prostitutes, bring in the drug addicts, bring in the down and outers, 
bring in the ones that nobody else wants because they may look rough, but they'll be his sheep. They'll be his sheep. He takes people who are living like dogs and he turns them into sheep. Now, they, it says in verse 22, they listen to him until this word, Gentiles. And they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He's not fit to live. And their prejudice took over. Verse 23, then as they cried out and tore off their clothes, you know, I'm going to try that sometime. You get so mad, you rip your clothes. I've never seen anybody do that. That's just bizarre. But that's what they did back then. You got so mad, you just, rah, you ripped your clothes. That was expensive anger, right? They tore their clothes and threw dust in the air. I want to try that too. Threw dust into the air, ripping your clothes, throwing dust in. That's a real anger fit, right? Now, here's the problem. In their brain, for Paul to go to the Gentiles was unpardonable. Here's why. Because he was going to go to the Gentile world and tell them that it was the Jews that crucified the Son of God. How could they rejoice knowing that this guy is about to go to the Gentiles and spread the word that the Messiah came to the world and that the Jews are the ones who killed him? To them, that was just undoable. We cannot in any way amen that. That is a crime of crimes. Verse 24, Paul had to be rescued. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging. This poor little Jewish man. I love him. But you know what he looked like? Of course, I've not seen him. But I can tell you what a typical Jewish man like this, he's he's older now. He's in the final years of his life. He's probably short. Uh, He had a lot of physical issues. He was frail. Um. He had eye problems because he said to the Galatians, I, 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 I can testify that if you could have taken out your own eyes and given me yours for mine, you would have. So he had eye problems. Don't know what it was. But his print, when, when he, uh, in, in the original letters that, that we have seen, the, the letters are huge. He couldn't see. He, you know, he was myopic. He, he's this little... Jewish man with a heart of a lion with an incredible anointing on his life. But, but listen, now they're going to take this little man whose back already looked like a road map. He'd already been shredded several times by whippings across his back and beating with rods and being stoned and left for dead. His little body, and, I, and I'm not demeaning him by saying little body. It was, it was, he was not a huge, big, towering man. His little body had just been through it. And now they're going to examine him, which means we're going to beat you until you tell us the truth about why they're so mad at you. What have you done? We're going to beat you until you finally tell us the truth. And so they bound him with thongs, verse 25. And Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? At least he stuck up for himself. That goes to show you, turn the other cheek. It doesn't mean anytime somebody wants to hit you, you just say, oh, go right ahead to the glory of God. And while you're doing it on the right side, hit this side too. Not me. You hit me. I'm going to defend myself. 
That's another topic. That, that, that command of Jesus is not understood. But here's the deal. He stuck up for himself. He said, hey, I'm a Roman. You can't do this to me. Now, we know that Paul was no stranger to beating with rods or to being lashed with a whip, but the scourge, folks, was different. It consisted of leather straps weighted with bits of iron. Now, stop and think about that. Here is a wooden handle. Here's leather straps. Um, I don't know how long, but probably good enough for the guy to stand back a little bit and just let you have it. And at the end of the leather straps are metal pieces like razors. And that's going to be laid across your back. I looked it up. Listen, in the hands of a brawny soldier, this scourge would tear out great lumps of flesh. I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not meaning to gross you out. I'm telling you what he was looking at. It was known to blind or cripple a man for life to be scourged this way. So Paul played his trump card, and so would Jeff have played his trump card. He said, I'm a Roman, and that made scourging him illegal. Verse 26, when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, take care of what you do, because this man's a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, are you a Roman? He said, yes. The commander said, hey, with a large sum, I became a Roman citizen. But Paul said, hey, I was born a citizen. I didn't pay a dime. I was born a Roman citizen. Then verse 29, immediately those who were about to examine him, lash him, they backed off. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Already that was illegal. He had no right to bind a Roman. So the next day, verse 30, because he wanted to know for certain why the Jews were pitching such a fit over him, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear. And they brought Paul down and set him in front of the chief priests and his Jewish persecutors and said, now, tell me, what is your beef with this man? That's the revised Wickwire slanted version. But that's what it was. What, what is it that you guys... What, what has he done? Now remember at this point what Jesus said to Paul at the moment that he called him when Ananias laid hands on him and he regained his sight. He said, he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So as he is brought now before the Sanhedrin under the heat of intense persecution, bound, arrested, we see the Lord's words coming to pass. So now we go into chapter 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, now he's got his chance to make his case. He said, men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Well, that was the beginning of his talk and it ended quick. Because right then, two sentences later, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to hit him in the mouth. <laughs> I have compassion for Paul. He just got, he just dodged the scourge. Now he's being smacked in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, I love this. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Everybody say, yes. God will strike you, you white." <laughs> Don't you wish you could say that to a few people on earth? 
God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. I don't know what that meant, but it sounds bad. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Translated, you blithering hypocrite. You say that you're judging me by your law and you're commanding me to be hit contrary to the law you say you're defending? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Now look at his change. I want to point out the way he changes right here. Paul said, oh, I didn't know, brethren. He was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now we need to pause here a moment and let's look at what just happened because it matters to us in this day. Here we have an example of Paul's spirit being beautifully submitted to the honor of God. As soon as he was told it was the high priest ordering him to be struck, his entire demeanor changed. You see it? God will smite you, you whitewashed wall. That's the high priest. Oh, I didn't know it was the high priest. His mind, no doubt, quickly went back to the Bible he knew so well and Exodus 22, verse 28, which says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And can I show you something here? How Paul was submitted to the word of God. I've asked you before, I know I've said it on a Sunday. I don't know if I've ever said it on a Wednesday, but I've asked you this question. Can the word tell you what to do? Can the word of God tell you what to do? Or do you think it's up to you whether or not you want to do what the word says to do? I think today, a lot of the church, I know, cherry picks what they want to accept from God's word and what they don't like. But I want you to notice how this man, the apostle Paul, was submitted instantly to the word of God. The word of God could tell him what to do, even though somebody was about to strike him in the mouth unlawfully. Now, here's the deal. The man was despicable. The character of the man who said hit him against the law, hit him, that man was despicable. But see, Paul looked beyond the man to the position that God gave the man. And Paul said, I will honor the position, though I cannot honor the man. Now, how can we apply that today? Well, all around us. We all have authority around us, don't we? We work for somebody. Um, you know, if you're a parent, you're an authority over the child. Um, all of us answer to somebody in this, in this life, in this world. We're under the government of America, unfortunately, sometimes, um, when it comes to tax time. But um, I want you to see how, first, Paul immediately submitted his spirit to the word of God. He said, I'll honor the position because the position represents God, even though I can't honor the man. So if a policeman pulls you over and he walks up and, and you recognize him, you say, oh, I know him. He beats his wife. He gets drunk on weekends. He, he, he kicked his kids out of the house. He lives terrible. He's a total hypocrite. But he pulls you over. Do you look at him based on what you know? And do you say, well, since I know that you beat your wife and you've kicked your kids out and you get drunk on weekends, I'm just going to hit the pedal to the metal again and I'm driving away and I'm not going to do what you say. You don't do that, do you? Because of those lights on the top of his car and that badge on his chest. 
we honor the position and we don't have to worry about honoring the person. But see, that goes out into many other parts of our life. Not just police. There's times God calls us to honor a position, though you can't honor the person in the position. And there's times when the word of God requires us to do something our flesh doesn't want to do. So though the man was despicable, the office was honorable, and Paul was honoring the office, not the man. He said, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. I take that back. You're not a whitewash wall. But I really like seeing that come out of Paul. He's human. Now, verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged. He, he spotted the Pharisees in there and he said, Let me tell you why I'm here. Because I've been preaching that one day everybody is coming out of the grave. Some to eternal life and some to eternal damnation. But I preach the resurrection of the dead. He's homing in on a target audience that was in that crowd. There were Sadducees and there were Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe in miracles or the supernatural or the resurrection of the dead. So he said, I'm going to home in on my, my guys who are at least with me on the resurrection. Pharisees were much easier to lead to Christ because they believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe in that or miracles, so Paul lobbed a hand grenade into this mixed council by informing them he was a Pharisee. I'm with you, Pharisees. Paul was smart. He, he name-dropped Gamaliel. He saw the Pharisees and said, hey, I'm one of you, so hear me out. You believe like I do about the resurrection of the dead, and that's what Jesus came to do. He, he's, he's trying to win some right there. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or no spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. There's a resurrection and there's angels. Then there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, hey, we don't find any evil in this man. The Pharisees were saying, hey, he's one of us. He believes in the resurrection. There's no evil in him. What did he do wrong? Why are you guys coming against him like this? We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, when there arose, verse 10, a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul would be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him by force from among them, and bring him into the barracks. Boy, everywhere he went. <laughs> Listen, it was a ride. Verse 11, but the following night, I love this, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Here's this man. He has just missed being scourged. He has just missed being hit in the mouth. He has faced the Sanhedrin, furious Jewish men. He has been surrounded by mobs and riots. And after all of this trial and trouble, Jesus appears to him. Amen. Be of good cheer, Paul. 
as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you're going to make it to Rome. While Paul was a great and courageous man, I'm going to tell you, I believe that at this time when the Lord appeared to him, he was probably a little depressed, fearful, a bit discouraged after all the uproar he caused. So Jesus appeared to strengthen him. Folks, thank God when we're down and when it's really come against us. That's when Jesus comes. And he comes to you in the night. And just one word from him. Isn't it funny, in the midst of all this, he says, hey, cheer up. Good cheer. Because he's essentially telling Paul, though it looks insane and chaotic and crazy and nutty, I'm in charge. You've testified in Jerusalem, I'm going to get you to Rome. Just like I told you. So everybody say with me, he's in charge, no matter how it looks. He said, you've done well, Paul. I've got this and I've got you. And as for Rome, I'm going to get you there. You're going to finish your course. Verse 12, when it was day, some of the Jews banded together. And boy, it's getting bad now. And they bound themselves under an oath saying, we're not going to eat anything or drink anything till we kill him. Now, there were more than 40 who formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves. Now, look who, who they're talking to. The Bible teachers of that day, the chief priests and the elders of the synagogues, they went to them and said, we're not going to eat, we're not going to drink anything until he's dead. You know what they said? Amen. Like I told you before, nobody's meaner than religious people. Now, now you therefore, they said to the chief priests and elders, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we're ready to kill him before he comes near. And they were in agreement with it. They were going to they were gonna, uh, uh, totally fake everybody out and say, we want to see him one more time. The chief, priests, and elders. We, wanted, we want to ask him questions tomorrow once again, like we did today. And when, when he was being brought down, there were going to be 40 men waiting. And they were going to jump him and kill him. And the chief priests were in on this. It was a total conspiracy. It was a wicked plot by wicked men who took a wicked oath. We won't eat till we kill Paul. But though they plotted behind closed doors, the Lord heard it and made sure somebody else heard about it too. Look at verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Uncle Paul. God chose a sympathetic ear to hear about their evil plan. Paul's nephew, his sister's son. And so he came and told Paul what was up, and then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, in verse 17, take this young man, my nephew, to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. And verse 19, the commander took the young man by the hand, went aside, and asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And Paul's nephew said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him, but do not do it. 
for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. And he snitched. Verse 22. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him. He said, don't you tell anybody what you've told me. The secret now is out. Their wicked plot is exposed by God using simple, natural means to bring it to nothing. Now, folks, let me tell you something. When God wants to deliver you, he can choose anybody he wants. They can be lost. They can be found. But will you see with me here, let, let's step back. I like doing this when I read the Bible, especially a, a narrative like this. Step back and see. The, the commander thinks he just kind of, he's found out about a conspiracy like he would find out about any other conspiracy. But when you pull back, you see the providential hand of God is not finished with Paul. So he's ordering these circumstances, and he had that nephew within earshot of these men as they were hatching their scheme. He ordered his steps without the young man knowing he was being led. Do you know that you're led all the time and don't even know it? The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. Though he, though he fall, he will not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. So all I'm saying is the providence of God leads us all the time when we don't know it. He's in charge of your steps. Well, y'all are staring at me like, do you get that? Do you, get, you say, well, no, no, only when I know he's leading me. Listen, you're aware of a tiny little bit of his leadership and his guidance in your life. Uh, he's ordering circumstances around you right now that you don't know anything about. He's ordering people and situations and doors to open and doors to close. Uh, I think when we get to heaven, one of the things that's going to shock us is all the times angels saved us, angels intervened in our lives, all the times that God caused us to turn this way or that way, and we didn't even know it. I mean, we're talking about a God who orders the steps, not only of the righteous, but look, he's ordering the steps of this commander. He's ordering the steps of this nephew because he's not done with his man. And you can't die until your purpose is fulfilled. So, so God's moving on Paul's behalf. Paul doesn't know about any of this. I mean, he doesn't know how God has done all this, and he didn't know God was a foot like this. Now, 23, he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So he's going to get Paul out of there late and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Now, let me tell you the truth. It wasn't that the commander has some kind of love for Paul or Christianity. He simply didn't want to have the answer or have to answer for the assassination of a Roman in his charge. So he thinks, I'm avoiding trouble. But the bigger picture is God's using him to save his man. Verse 25, and then he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, who we're going to meet soon. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the council. 
I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him farewell. He failed to mention, I almost scourged him, and I did bind him. He failed to mention that little bit of information. So notice he's keeping himself clean. Verse 31, then the soldiers, they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Now notice, as I've already mentioned, how God uses ungodly men to bring about his protection of Paul. To the soldiers, it was just a wise move to protect themselves from trouble, but the bigger picture was God was keeping his man, Paul, alive to do his will. God is watching over you. Maybe some of you need to hear that tonight. Maybe I need to hear it tonight. But God's watching over us. I'm going to say that probably two or three times a week something will happen with me and I'll realize God was watching over me and ordering my steps. But most of it I don't see. Most of it I don't see. And neither do you. Now, Verse 32, the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him, and they returned to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor Felix, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now, Paul's life has now changed because now he's a prisoner. Paul would remain in Caesarea for two years as a prisoner. His case will hang in limbo. Please see with me how things you experience. Where's God? Why is this taking so long? I don't understand why he's not answering my prayer. Why am I having to wait so long? Why am I just sitting here in limbo? Paul sat in this prison in limbo for two years. And his patience was tried to the utmost. Because this is like Cage and a lion. He's used to traveling the world, preaching everywhere he went. It's in his blood. It's in his bones. And now he's sitting in prison waiting for the politicians to get it together and everybody to, to, to come together at the right time of their own choosing so that he can answer for himself and this thing can move on. But in the meantime, his patience is being tried to the utmost. He's just sitting there. And it's here in this time in his life, he first refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Because my attitude, King Paul, isn't going to sit there and go, well, man, what a bum rap I've gotten. They've forgotten about me. Where's all the Christians I led to Christ? Where's Jesus? I don't understand why. I'm... No, none of that. He, he turned it for his good. He turned, as we say, lemon into lemonade. He said, all right all right, if I'm going to sit here, here's the way I'm going to look at it. And he changed his attitude. I'm not their prisoner. I'm his prisoner. Because when you say in your pain and whatever your situation is, I'm here in the will of God. I'm going to wait on God. I'm going to embrace him in this time of waiting. And this time where I don't know where things are going. What's going to happen to me? What job I'm going to get? What door is going to open for me? Who or what I'm going to end up with? 
what my next decision holds. When I'm in limbo, instead of getting bitter, he got better. And he said, I'm his prisoner. And when he's ready for me to get out, he will open the door. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? We can so learn from my attitude king. That's what I call him. He's my attitude king. Because you couldn't knock this man down. He could communicate with his friends. It wasn't a terrible imprisonment. Uh, his detention was lenient. He could bring friends in and communicate with them. But that was it. He couldn't travel. He was not his own. He was a prisoner. Next week, we're going to look at Paul the prisoner, part two. But let me ask you before we stand up to pray, where are you in your life? Are, are you in a prison of sorts? Um, do you feel trapped? Maybe it's a job you don't like. Maybe it's a relationship that's troubled. Maybe you wish there was a relationship and you're alone. Can you get to the place where you can say with my attitude, King, hey, you know what? Uh, he's in charge and I can embrace him and, and love him and serve him and worship him until this changes. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's stand together tonight, can we? Isn't this good stuff in the book of Acts? Isn't it good? Amen. It is good. Good stuff. Let's just lift our hands and thank Jesus. Lord, we just thank you. We praise you, living God, living Christ. We thank you, Lord, that the providence of God is at work in ways we don't see right now, this very moment. Lord, you're moving behind the scenes in ways we are not aware of. And your word to us is what it was to Paul. Worship me, trust me, seek me, live for me, and trust me and trust my timing. So let's just say to him, Lord, I trust your timing. Help me to grow, blossom where I'm planted. Give me the attitude that Paul had that he got from Jesus. Yes, Lord. Amen. Let's worship the King of Kings for a moment.